and welcome to episode 33 of the Auto Movie Podcast, where myself and Martin Spain talk nonsense about cars and films and TVs and online and all that good stuff. Coming up in this episode, we have the last instalment for now of our, Thank God. Of our Fast and Furious marathon. The regret is real. The regret <laughs> is real. I'm much, though I love this franchise, I am very... Very pleased we've come to the end of this. I was thinking about before the start of the show going, what are we going to review for the next show? I have no idea. I know it won't be Fast and Furious, though. (laughs) It'll be fresh and vibrant and interesting. We shall see. But first, let's just follow up on a few stories for things we've been covering thus far. And let's start with Michael Fassbender and his ELMS attempt. That never gets easier to say, does it? (laughs) <laughs> I think this has now jumped to the top of my favourite series of this year on YouTube, at least. Uh, all thanks to one episode, which I think was episode three? Was it three or four of this of the series? Three. Uh, three, where they spend a whole weekend with, in one race. They don't jump around, they don't do training or anything. It's just one episode, one race. It's a particularly tense race. It's where um, they're racing at Spa with the WEC as well as the regular ELMS. They merge the series together, so it's a bigger field. There are the LMP1s for the first time racing at the same time, which are obviously an order of magnitude faster than the GT car that Michael Fassbender's driving. And this episode is twice as long as anyone that's come before. It's like over 20 minutes long and it's it's superb. The tension is real, you, even though I'm vaguely aware of the result because I'm pretty sure I watched this race live. <laughs> I was still tense from start to finish about what was going on with this. It felt like they're doubling down on the openness and the honesty. You know, they're showing what I didn't expect to hear, which is... Michael Fassbender openly admitting that this is really hard Mm. and that he is at his limit of processing new information. Because let's face it, Chris, you have texted me thousands of times saying, when my lottery numbers come in, I'm going to do a race team and I'm going to go and be a racing driver and I'm going to be brilliant. And I've always gone and I will watch. (laughs) Because I'm very well aware of how difficult it is to be quick in a modern racing car. And... The pros make it look so easy, more of that in a minute, that it can seem like, oh, yeah, you just jump in and drive these GT3 cars. And, you know, the drives that journalists like Andrew Frankel and Dickie Meaden do in the magazines make it seem like these cars are the friendliest things in the world to drive. And this proves that even if you are a good, quick AM driver, like Fassbender is mm. is, is evolving into, there's just different levels of fast. And I was so pleased to hear the honesty and the fact that they didn't leave this out. They actually left a bit in where he's he's saying, look, I am at capacity. I cannot process any more new information mm. because it shows that for somebody who's had all the preparation that he's had and all the experience that he's had, moving up to ELMS, we said in the last series last year that we thought he'd go to the ELMS and it was a big jump. And so it's proved to be. But this episode was absolutely riveting, start to finish. I, I, I've loved season one and two of Car Trek, but I think this one episode may have elevated the, the road to Le Mans above both mm. of them. I really, really enjoyed this. I know there was a new episode out today as we record this. It's Friday the 20-something, 20th? 20th. 21st? Yeah. It's Friday the 20th of November, and there is a new episode out, and I haven't seen it, and Chris has. And you tell me that it's... it's good. Um, It's good. good. So I've got that to look forward to tomorrow. But if you haven't seen any of these, please go and watch it. It's excellent. And it's free. I have to say, Porsche are really making a name for themselves doing good documentaries because they did Endurance last year. Last year? Similarly honest. Uh, Was it last year, this year? Yeah. Anyway, whenever it was, which is fantastic. And this, although it's episodic, and although it is following... It's following on from the story that was last year. It doesn't feel like it's repeating itself. And in fact, the fact that the stakes have been raised, this isn't just the Porsche Sports Cup. German Porsche Carrera Cup, yeah. It, it, this The stakes have been raised, you're right, and the series is evolving as the story is evolving. And the fact is this is happening not quite real time, but pretty damn close. Mm. And, and it, it's really good as well because you've got Michael Fassbender, who could have been very macho about it 
and wanting to present a good image. He's really open. And then you've got Richard Leitz, who's what who's one of his teammates, who's so down to earth and has done this for so long. He's just like, yeah, you do that. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, don't worry, it'll be fine. He comes across brilliantly in this episode. Uh, we, I don't want to spoil it, even though you know you can go go watch it. But he he just comes across as he's the he's the leader. He is the guy that knows what to do and to, and and suggests. Here's what I think. Here's what we should do. Don't worry. And you know he's he's asked to do difficult things, and he just goes out and does yeah. it, bosses it, and he, he's fantastic. And it's a real insight into what it is like to be a absolute top flight platinum GT driver, mm. and what what you have to be able to do, and how you prolong your career, or how you have a long and successful career with a manufacturer like Porsche at the top level these are the things you're going to get asked to do and you need to just be brilliant all the time <laughs> and yet friendly and approachable and and all the things that he is and it's so enjoyable seeing someone at the top of their game mm. um doing their job and being able to see behind the curtain because this you might hear on radio le mans commentary of oh there's ricard leitz doing a great job in the, the 83 car you have no idea the context behind that you miss it because it's a fleeting line of commentary and it's gone and then they cut back to the LMP1s doing their thing or the LMP2s battling away and you've no idea about the rest of the story of the weekend and that's the joy of this episode is it tells the full story of the weekend it doesn't kind of jump into and here's quality and here's the race and here's the debrief mm. in the now we've had a 20 minute episode of this i want them all to be 20 minutes they probably won't be but this was a bit of superb work really really superb and one other thing that it does really well is being able to put you in the car in a way that's not just in car footage but actually you feel the sense of what it's like to be on there and speaking of which there was a video done with piston heads by sam sheehan where he actually drives the rsr gte which i think is the same car that fastbender's driving and he gets it across really well how easy it is to drive up to 90%. And then the last 10% is the bit where you can really, really make the difference through error and what have you. So definitely catch up on the series if you haven't been watching it already. Check out Sam's video as well, because that's really good. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And speaking of racing, one other quick bit of follow-up. I think in the last episode or maybe the episode before, I mentioned the Bad Obsession Motorsport channel and they've been doing a series this year where they've been racing the Citroen C1, the C1 WRC, they call it because of their paint job, in a one make, or it's not one make, but it's like one class racing series. Really good, really enjoyed the whole series. But the last episode was a bit of a wrap up, a bit of a Q&A. And then they tell you what happens to the car and... I won't say any any more other than that involves Mission Motorsport and therefore we are both of the agreement that is a fantastic cause to be supported. So have a watch, check it out um, if you haven't already. And if you are into building cars and racing cars, check out the whole series. It's completely the other end of the scale to the Porsche GTR. Yeah, I don't think you can be much uh, further away racing a little Citroen C1, but I've seen this all over my socials and and I still haven't watched anything by Bad Obsession Motorsport because I'm running out of time, Chris. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of time over Christmas. I will do some YouTube catching up then. Speaking of new stuff, there's been a series from Matt Farah of The Smoking Tire alongside uh, Rob Ferretti and... Emilia Hartford. Uh, Emilia Hartford, called Sorted, which you've seen and I haven't. So tell me about <laughs> it. So this was uh, Rob Ferretti's idea, which is why it's on Rob Ferretti's channel, although Matt, as you say, is presenting. So the idea is they've got tuna cars from the East Coast, tuna cars from the West Coast, and they are finding which is the best tuna car on each coast, and they are battling them in some sort of battle royale thing. The idea is that these cars are all heavily modified. So I think the the lowest power one possibly is, I won't say 500 horsepower Honda S2000, going up to a Supra with 1,000 horsepower, uh, I think a 700 horsepower one series BMW, 
<laughs> 700 horsepower from a yeah. 1 Series. I have a 1 Series. Do I'm, you want 700 I horsepower? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, you can't get it out of mine. Mine's a 130 and you can't do anything to that engine. It's it's at it's at peak capacity um not without spending tons of money for no return i mean this must got to be a turbocharged one oh, that yeah. they then just bolted like some kind of truck turbocharger <laughs> to oh you soon you watch it and you start start talking about a pair of uh, 76 mil turbos and nodding sagely um <laughs> now the idea is that you meet the cars they're tested on the road to see if they work as road cars which they don't because they're tuned to within an inch of their lives. Indeed. Tanner Faust then drives them doing drag racy stuff and some time attack stuff. And I love Tanner Faust. I want to watch the series because Tanner Faust <laughs> is in it. The problem is we haven't got the Tanner Faust bit. Also, um, I was watching a smoking tyre thing earlier, which I think you might talk about. And apparently in the series, Tanner F- for the first time on television, says fuck. Um, <laughs> now, so far... I think there's a format problem with this. And I'm waiting to see how it plays out. But the first episode, which was half an hour, and all the episodes are half an hour, they introduced all the cars in half an hour. And having a series of men tell you what they've done to their car for half an hour gets old quite quickly. They then, for episode two, did the drivability test, which appeared to be ragging the bollocks off them in a straight line on the public road that was the test so they they basically drove these cars at 100 150 miles an hour on what appeared to be a public open stretch of road and they weren't hiding the speedos or anything like that also they must have been jumping in and out of them pretty quick at one point matt farrow was driving without any seat belts on because it had harnesses and i'm guessing they were just too slow to adjust at least one person was driving without a seatbelt actually attached, which is just kind of like, huh? Um, so but so they're basically each level of the challenge is a different show. So there's going to be one show, which is going to be Tanner Faust driving on track a load of tuna cars, which will be the one to watch. I suppose you've got two choices when you're cutting this kind of thing together. You can do... The, what you've described, which is let's get everyone introduced so everyone's aware of all the cars and you go into the next episode going, well, I really want to see how this car does versus that car. Mm. Or you take the approach, which I think sounds like what you would prefer, which is you do it in heats yeah. and you do the whole journey for two cars, let's say, in heats and then the next episode's more heats, which is a lot like uh, how the Netflix series Hyperdrive works. Yes. Imagine if Hyperdrive had been right. The first episode is just, here's everyone you're going to see across the entire series and no racing. Mm. I'm not sure too many people would have got past episode one. And I I get where you're coming from. I'm going to give this a watch because I like Matt Farah's work most of the time. I like Tanner Faust's driving and general on-screen persona almost all of the time. I, I can... Take or leave Rob Ferretti, but I, I like some of the stories he tells on VinWiki, and I have no idea who Amelia Hartford is, so that's the thing. They, there is a story on VinWiki of the background of this where Rob was saying basically he was getting phone calls from people going, oh, yeah, I can, I'll bring this car down, and then like a day before being like, oh, yeah, I've blown the turbo on it and I can't make it, and he was just sort of scrabbling around for cars because it turns out when you produce big power in your garage at home... Cars don't last that long. Yeah, I think everyone who's ever tuned a car to big power will probably say the same. <laughs> big power with reliability costs serious money. But uh, I do want to give Sorted a watch, uh, and that's just on YouTube, yeah? That's not on Motor Trend or anything Correct. Like, it? It's on... Uh, I can't remember the name of the channel. Whatever Rob Ferretti's channel's called. Let's call it Rob Ferretti's channel. Uh, we'll stick a link to the show notes in that one. Um, also announced this week, very suddenly, out of nowhere, the Grand Tour dropped a trailer for their latest special, which is called A Massive Hunt. I think, what, Thursday this, this trailer yep. dropped? And the special itself is going to be on Amazon Prime on December the 18th, which is a long time away. It feels like it, the boys have been away a very long time. And I, for one, am very pleased to see the trailer and see them back doing stupid stuff in cars. Yes. Nothing more to say on that. It looks fantastic. 
next yeah and it makes me want to it makes me want a bentley again like i think i said to you in a text that it's clear i'm getting older because the answer to ever more motoring questions is bentley <laughs> they're handsome cars yeah what car do you want to take to the south of france bentley continental gt what car should you you know just rag around for the family bentley Mulsanne. what big vulgar suv should i buy uh range rover full fat <laughs> There is always an exception to the rule, but we're getting off topic. There's a couple more things we want to get through before we go into our main and final Fast and Furious marathon. The first of which is Johnny Smith's rebranded channel, The Late Break Show. So Johnny Smith has been doing some brilliant content on The Late Break Show, as I think I said in the last episode. However, it's kind of been at the at the forefront of a wave of content we've had recently where he is doing longer form interviews and he sat down literally with his own two chairs that he brought on a trailer with Chris Harris and he did a fantastic longer form interview with Chris about his career about Top Gear about his cars about his sheds and it was really engaging really interesting I think Johnny has a really good sense of finding interesting angles for questions. I think it was edited together very well. It wasn't just a one or two camera setup that rolls like you sometimes get on other things. And it was really interesting. It was enlightening. There was new information in there. I think Chris came came across fantastically well. And in fact, he's been doing some really good longer form content recently and interviews in particular, because we know he can, because we've been listening to the Collecting Cars podcast, which is pretty much uniformly really, really good. Um, there was another video, long interview that he did with a Remove Before Race. There was a good interview he did on the Top Gear YouTube channel with Graham Cooper from National Grid. This was excellent. And one of the only times where there has been a reasoned discussion about how our electric vehicle future might happen. Mm. Because a lot of the time in in reviews of EVs or in, I hesitate to use the word discussion, but in, in Twitter <laughs> threads about EVs, people are, are firmly entrenched on, on, the, on their particular sides and there's very little um, fact and there's very little acknowledgement that but either side has a point and mm. this is fantastic because not only have you got someone who works for the national grid and who knows a thing or two about how we might power all of the evs that we are inevitably going to be moving towards um but you've got someone who is also a petrol head and mm. owns a series one elise and wants to keep driving it and enjoying it and chris has basically got carte blanche to ask all the difficult questions about how we're going to power all these EVs and where's the power going to come from and what about all the rare earth minerals that were used in the batteries mm. and you know where does the this leave the internal combustion engine if, almost every question you want to ask about the EV future is asked here and answered to the best of Graham's knowledge, uh, which is extensive. Mm. This is this should be required watching for anyone who's interested in cars and um, is concerned about the the onslaught of EVs or is an EV fanatic and and perhaps wants to take a middle position rather than the sort of Tesla bro entrenched. Oh, you guys God. are all the devil. Yeah, you know the kind of people we mean. Um, it's it's such a good interview. Again, about half an hour. Um, it's one of the best bits of video journalism I think I've seen Chris put out mm. apart from his, um, you know, his Chris Harrison car stuff and all that. But this, it's, this is an interview which he doesn't do on video very often. He does them on the Collecting Cars podcast, like Chris said. Um, other Chris, uh, Radcliffe, <laughs> not Harris. It's getting confusing here. But this is this is just fantastic, and like you say, there's just sort of been a flood of content um, featuring Mr. Harris. Uh, Top Gear have been doing sort of shorter form stuff with him talking to Top Gear magazine's Jack Ricks about a number of subjects. Mm. Uh, all of those are pretty good too, if you if you want to waste a lunchtime watching through those, because it's it's the kind of chat that you tell me that you want on actual Top Gear. <laughs> And I tell you would mean that the viewing audience for actual Top Gear would drop precipitously, i.e. it's car nerd stuff. 
we haven't yet talked about the latest series of Top Gear, and I think we should, but when they did the Honda E, which I think is a cracking little electric car, they did a piece on Top Gear where they started with Chris driving that uphill and down Dale. And I kind of, I, I gritted my teeth and I winced a bit. I was like, okay, here we go. It's, you know, it's too heavy and it's too slow to charge. And Because you're an EV stan. I am, I am. But and I'm an EV hater. But and, and you can't live in the middle ground. It's just that. <laughs> but Chris's piece was balanced and was fair and gave a really well-rounded, considered view of what that car was for. It wasn't this thing of, like, Quentin Wilson with his arched eyebrow and pocket of Werther's original saying that all cars must be charged in five minutes and they've got to do 450 miles, they've got to cost 15 grand, because no cars cost 15 grand these days. It was very much sort of like, this is a car for doing this job, and this is the thing, and here's the trade-offs, and here's what it means, and da-da-da-da-da. And it was, it was really good, and it was really balanced. And I think that through the Top Gear series, I think Chris has continued and has probably elevated, actually, the quality of those pieces that he does when it's him. And he's kind of given that space and that free reign to not have to lark about with the lads, but just do his thing. And I think he is getting better. I think he is really just growing into a role that just when you think it's kind of like, okay, you know, he can do that now, he'll he'll just do it that bit better. Let's well let's let's actually dig into the current just screened series of Top Gear, which I think is series I want to say series twenty eight. Um I'm not sure about that. I'm gonna do some live Googling. <laughs> um hold on, Top Gear series twenty was it twenty eight or twenty nine? Wow. Uh let's see. No, that was this is series twenty nine. Good grief. They've been going going through them a bit now. Mm. So what did you think? Having I mean there was it was a short series because it was interrupted in the middle with COVID. Yep. So I think there were only five episodes in it. Yes. Uh, six. I but think. I thought by and large, a pretty good bunch. It's clear they've pivoted somewhat from the sort of the model laid down by Clarkson Hammond and May mm. and then largely taken up when they got through the Chris Evans bit and Ugh. onto the sort of slightly more stable lineup of Rory Reed, uh, Chris Harris, and Matt LeBlanc, where if you go back and watch them, there are some great episodes, but they are very much still in the formula with a little nod towards the sort of emerging double act of Chris Harris and Matt LeBlanc, yeah. which I love. I've gone back and watched all of those. I've said it on the podcast before and I'll keep saying it. I loved them as a double act doing stuff because it was clear that they, you know, they liked and respected <laughs> one another and they had differing but complementary views about cars. And they've pivoted away from that with this new lineup, Freddie Flintoff, um, the other guy, and Chris Harris, I've forgotten his name. Paddy McGuinness, there you go. Um, we're, which is far more on the sillier side of the Top Gear format where boys do japes yeah. and make bum jokes and Flintoff shows you his ass at some point. Uh, and then also they do some absolutely outrageous things that you just can't imagine they would be able to sell to the BBC Health and Safety Board, <laughs> like dropping Flint off off a dam in an MG Metro. Mm. Or the the one that got me was when they did the uh, the car write offs challenge. So they had a Maserati, they had a Boxster, and a Focus RS, and Cayman. Cayman, Cayman. sorry, um, it is yes, and they did some challenges that were kind of fun and were kind of JP. And that I was enjoying. And then they took them to, to do a wall of death. I should add, there's a really great feature in BBC Top Gear magazine about the making of that feature, about how they made the wall of death and the things they went through. That episode of Top Gear, that that that, that show was so good. Uh, that, that particular feature, it was made so well mm. and it made it perfectly clear how dangerous it was what oh, they were God, doing yeah. how difficult and scared they all were and you know the, the the joy at the success of it that was um that was some great television it was and 
I the the whole series has been filled with bits where you go, wow, I can't believe they've <laughs> done that. But yes, I, I've enjoyed the series. I think there've been a couple of episodes which were maybe less strong. The overall tone of it is less to my liking. Mm. But on the other hand, I'm still watching. I'm watching with my wife, and we're both laughing at it a lot, which didn't always happen in the latter years of Clarkson, Hammond, and May. It's been a good series of top guests. A short, I think short is good because it forces you to concentrate on the good ideas. And by and large, I'd say that a good three quarters of this series was full of some pretty good ideas. And the Sterling Moss tribute in the middle of the series was, again, another excellent piece of Chris Harris TV. Mm, Yes. Now, let's move on to the (laughs) final segment of our Fast and Furious marathon where Chris is going to talk about Fast and Furious 7 and I am going to talk about the eighth film in the series, The Fate of the Furious, if you're in America, or just Fast and Furious 8 if you're in the UK because maybe we don't understand what the word fate means. I don't know. Now, the fun thing about this is Chris hasn't seen these movies until now, Yep. whereas I've seen them a lot and know how unbelievably stupid they are. (laughs) So, Chris, how did you find Fast and Furious 7? Well, let me start by saying... These two films represent something of a departure from particularly the ones we've talked about most recently because Justin Lin, who came onto the franchise for Tokyo Drift, who then also did Fast and Furious, Fast Five, and Fast and Furious 6, didn't do 7 or 8. Tellingly, both of these films have a one-time director, and Justin Lin has been brought back for 9, 10, 11. So immediately, these two are are a little bit different. So Furious 7, as Wikipedia tells me the official title is, starts with Jason Statham, and I'm going to leave the voice for you, <laughs> in the hospital room of his brother, who's in a coma, having been dropped out of an aeroplane in the last film, pledging his revenge on Dominic Toretto. Meanwhile, Dominic and Lottie are back together. They Letty. Letty, sorry. They go off to race wars to try and jog Letty's memory. And Brian has become a parent. He's doing the school run. He is living this new life that he is not equipped for in any way. The premise of the film really revolves around the ever-sweaty Rock, who the first time you see him, he's doing admin at his desk, and he's very, very, very sweaty. Shortly after, Jason Statham, this shadowy figure, comes bursting in, and they they have a fight. Repeatedly, I'll I'll address this now because this will come up again and again through both of these films. Jason Statham, I think, is probably a bit handy. However, him trying to fight The Rock is like him trying to fight an oak tree. Short of a chainsaw, you're not going to have much luck. No. So they fight. Dominic gets into a thing. He then calls on Hobbs to come and find... um, What's his name? Uh, Deckard... What's the surname? Sure. Sure. Of Hobson Shaw fame. And in the middle of this, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it like this because the plot, it kind of just sort of rambles around and they're still trying to do this multi-threading thing. They have to go and rescue a computer hacker called Ramsey, who has invented a thing called the God's Eye. <laughs> it's just such well, my, my my favourite line possibly <laughs> the whole series so far is in your interview in your film and I will get to that when it is your review um, the God's Eye is a bit like that thing from was it the Dark Knight where it can tap into any CCTV camera and any microphone and any cell phone and can track anybody anywhere which for the writers must have been a real thing of like do we let this genie out of the bottle and suddenly make everybody incredibly easy to track Popping up is the brilliantly named, is it Mr. Nobody? Yes, yes it is. He wants them to go and get the hacker, retrieve the computer system and and, and make all that good. So, the hit, so Dominic has to go off and get the crew back together. Now, at this point, we are, is it just after Tokyo Drift in the sort of, the timeless kind of thing. So he has to go to Japan, gets 
um, some things for, of Hans from uh, Lucas Black, who thankfully is only in this film shortly. And ages, like 10 years <laughs> in, in, in the space of one cut, <laughs> where they use a bit from the very end of Tokyo Drift, and then they cut to him just standing at the edge of a parking garage looking <laughs> much older. And he looked old in Tokyo Drift. I like Lucas Black a lot. I think he gets... He, him and his character come in for a lot of stick. We've already established that we're in the bag for oh, Tokyo yeah. Drift, but man, that cut does not do him any favours. So we've now got this this thing where Hobbs is working with um, working with Toretto. They've got Tedge. They've got uh, Roman. For some reason, probably related to sponsorship, they then all go off to Abu Dhabi, where they then land in Abu Dhabi and start driving Veyrons and McLarens and stuff. They then try to get a car out of a an apartment vault, which also happens to be made in the UAE, and they only made like seven of them apparently. Yeah, what is it? It's um, it's the Lyman, uh, not Lyman Zerger. Oh, it's Lycan. a Lycan. It's that's right. It's a it's a Lycan, Lycan something or other. They they tried that sound. That's it. Because if you if you go on again, we're going to mention Vinwicky here. You can thank us later, Red Bullion. There's some great back uh, behind-the-scenes stories on the Lycan that they put together for the short-lived and probably quite rubbish Fast and Furious mm. live show, which I never saw. But a friend of mine did some of the um, the auditioning for the stunt drivers, weirdly enough. And uh, yes, uh, the there is a fake Lycan out there that's being rebuilt with boxed <laughs> underpinnings um, by Casey Putsch. I think his name is. And uh, yeah, you can read all about it. Or sorry, you can you can um, watch all about it, hear all about it on the VinWiki channel. Those are, those are good videos to watch. Back to your review. So then they all go to New York, I think. If I've got my films not entirely mixed up, because frankly, if you watch them side by side, they do kind of run together. And sorry, back in California. So you've then got one group trying to trying to kill Ramsey, get the god's eye back to use for nefarious purposes and you've got Hobbs and Toretto and all those guys um trying not to there is a level of silliness in this which is moderately well controlled they build cars that apparently you can just drive off cliffs and they land a bit nose heavy and then you just drive away. That's fine. Um, I did have... I, I, I had a couple of problems with the film. One of which was the treatment of women in this. I think there's a lot of women in our, as, as eye candy in this film. There always are in these movies. They've never really got away from, uh, away from that. But, but I think with this, particularly the first half of the film, they really lean into it. And... So I mentioned before that the director from for this film, and it's the only one that he's done, hopefully it's the only one he will ever do, uh, is a guy called James Wan, who made his name on the Saw franchise. He came up with the Saw franchise. Um, he's also done some other horror series, which I must admit I haven't seen. And there is a fight between Letty and a um, bodyguard, effectively, which feels like it's kind of there to balance the criticism that we're like, look, we've got two women fighting and being badasses, so therefore it's fine that we can show all these women in bikinis. And you're like, uh, no. There's literally one scene where they've got women in bikinis dancing in showers for reasons. Um, I think it's particularly bad in this film, and it, it was, it was, it felt like it served no purpose, especially the fact that it's also a series that's got a lot of good, well-rounded, strong female characters in it. It felt just quite unnecessary. Also, this feels like both the least car-y film of the franchise so far, in as much as there are car chases in it, but aside from Abu Dhabi putting up a lot of money to get their supercar into it, it wasn't really that much about the cars. It was just a kind of... It was almost a bit like a heist film crossed with, like, sex in the city that, like, halfway through, they just sort of go off to Abu Dhabi and go, oh, look, isn't this fabulous? We're all driving Veyrons. Isn't this just how things work when you go to the rental desk at Abu Dhabi airport? And then you've also got... What was the other thing? Um, the dialogue. The dialogue just felt really flat. And I know I said in when I was talking about Fast Five 
that there were too many characters. In this, they've scaled it back, but they still don't have that kind of zingy dialogue that you you get in the other films. It all just felt like it was so focused on a couple of big set pieces, particularly at the end, and I won't say what they are because I think some of them are quite spectacular. Um, I thought it was very telling, actually. There is one scene where they jump the Lycan hypercar across three towers of a hotel. This is a series that started with people street racing and stealing DVD <laughs> players, and now they are jumping a car between high-rise towers in Abu Dhabi. But here's the thing that got me with that. As a spectacle, you kind of go, okay, somebody's thought, well, what about if? And you're going to go, okay, cool. They then land right outside the name of the hotel, and they've gone, oh, my God, I can't believe we just jumped a car between the towers of, uh, of uh, the Etihad Towers Hotel. He's like, what? Clang. You know, this is like, this is Bond <laughs> levels of product placement. It's... Well, hold hold that <laughs> thought. Let, let me just let me just round this out. So Furious 7, I think it's one of the most highly rated of the franchise. But for me, it was actually one of the worst. I think there are scenes that are just overblown. I will never get the image of The Rock... Do we call The Rock or Dwayne Johnson? The Rock. I call him Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson. Ripping a belt-fed machine gun off a UAV and using that to shoot people as though he's some sort of, like, manga hero, just, like, firing with these shells going everywhere. And it was it was just... He, he flexes his muscles and breaks the cast yes! open. Yes! Yeah, you should add. Yeah, you know he 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 is he he has his ass handed to him by Jason Statham because, well, reasons um, like you say, uh, and and he ends up in hospital in a cast, which then he he wears for about five minutes until his his sweat fueled body has repaired itself. At which point he flexes a bicep and the cast just falls off magically, and then he goes and rips off a you know a machine gun off of the front of a an A10 warthog and starts machine gunning stuff. It, you know, we are so far beyond the realms of the even slightly plausible now. Um, that I mean, it's it's a cartoon, it's a live action cartoon, and this film for me was the point at which they abandoned all pretense at trying to ground any of it and just went, you know what, we're just trying to top the action of the last one. Fuck it. How can we get them from this set piece to that set piece with the minimum amount of, of movie logic? And this was the problem with me for this film was that it is big and it is silly and that's fine. And I think you've got The Rock. You've got Jason Statham who plays that character brilliantly. And again, there's so much more I want to talk about in the next film. But it just lacked any depth, any sparkle. All the effort and the thought went into the to the stunt. So there's a scene where they, they, they drive out the back of a plane and you get it's just these long lingering shots of cars in impossible positions doing ungodly things. But there's just nothing there. You scratch the surface and there's nothing underneath. And this is why I got to the end and it felt like... You know when you go and have a McDonald's and you have a Big Mac meal or whatever and you get to the end and you're still hungry? That's what this felt like. It was just... It, was, it wasn't even bad. I mean, it wasn't like Too Fast, Too Furious that was bad. It was just hollow and disappointing. And it just lacked anything that really made it interesting or that, that made it fizz. That was the thing. And yet, this movie made $1.516 billion at the box office globally. I think if you look on, possibly on IMDb, it's one of the highest rated of the whole franchise. I know a lot of people love it, and we should probably just mention in passing that this is indeed the last movie that Paul Walker took part in, because during production he was sadly killed at the wheel of a Porsche Carrera GT and wasn't able to complete filming, so two of his brothers... Caleb and Cody Walker were used as stand-ins to help finish the movie, I think, in in a couple of scenes, and there's some digital face replacement. It's interesting to me that they fi they finished the movie, which of course they were going to do. There's a huge amount of financial investment in it, and I very much get the impression from Vin Diesel's interviews that he, although it never came across in the film that they were equals, he was a brother to Paul Walker in all but actual blood. They were very mm. much two halves of the same whole as far as Fast and Furious went. And I think 
an awful lot of the reason this movie is so beloved is because it is the last Paul Walker Fast and Furious movie. And that allows you to overlook any amount of silliness because the spectacle is huge and the family's all together and it's got Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson in it kicking ass. And somehow Mm. that kind of hand waves and papers over the cracks for an awful lot of people. But I understand exactly what you're saying. And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't get any better in Fast 8. Well, so... I think one thing we need to just touch on is the end sequence of Fast 7 because they have to do something to basically round out Brian's character and really give him a tribute. And Yeah, they sort of write him out and give him a tribute in the same the same sequence, don't they? I texted you as I was watching it and went, is it me or is the CGI on this actually quite bad? And you went, it's not you. It's... It's a little uncanny valley. And it's, it's very uncanny valley, but it's also when you see them on the beach playing, you can tell that's not Paul Walker. They 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 can't cover up the fact that it's a double, or they or they don't cover it up very well. Even though it's you know it's a it's a it's a member of his family. Mm. It's it, yes, you're it, right. It does look odd. You kind of overlook it because you know why it looks odd. Yeah. Um, I think for me, this has always been. It's both sweet and heartfelt and also utterly not in keeping with how the two characters have been portrayed in an awful lot of the movies where it's Dom is the alpha and Brian is the beta. Mm. Even though Brian keeps insisting that he is an equal, Dom is like, no, but I'm faster. No, I won that race. Mm. No, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's winning by an inch or a mile, (laughs) winning's winning. It's always been that way. He's like the older brother that's continually ragging on the younger brother. There's no equals and this was the only point where they were like oh yeah actually maybe we'll we'll give him a good send-off it's never quite landed for me because of that but i appreciate the gesture and this movie did gangbusters repeat business Mm. because of that ending i believe very firmly that lots of people went to see it more than once because of that ending because of the timing and the unfortunate story of paul walker passing away during filming Mm. and you know these movies had from Fast Five onwards made a lot more money again. But this is doing billions. One and a half billion dollars was previously for James Cameron movies and the odd MCU movie. Mm. And now the Fast and Furious franchise for the last two movies has broken the billion dollar mark handily. And that's insane money, which means they are forced to expand the cast, go even further in the mayhem. <laughs> and and that kind of leads me on to Fast 8. Now, I'm going to be a bit sweary in this review, and it's going to be a bit of a stream of consciousness. Chris was really good and recapped the whole plot and set the backstory. I'm not going to bother doing that because you don't need to know the plot of Fast 8. It's absolute <laughs> bullshit. So... I will give you a brief precis of the opening. It opens in Havana. It's gorgeous colours, retro cars, beautiful scenery, and then they somehow crowbar in a dumb street race for contractual reasons and to throw back to Fast and Furious's start beginning. The street race ends in Dom crossing the line, backwards and on fire. Really? This is meant to be a punchline to a joke, but this is what actually happens. (laughs) Shortly after this, the car he's in falls in the sea. (laughs) But he wins his his odd street race using Cuban NOS, which is somehow different from other NOSs. Um, Made out of cigars, I don't know. It's... uh, there's a weird line in this in this in the street race at the start as well about using a vacuum hose as some kind of cheap person's turbo. I'm not quite sure what that means. There's a there's a really nice blink and you'll miss it refer, re, um, reference to Brian, and he said it's a trick the Buster taught me. And I really love that there's just that little callback and then they don't mention it again. That's a trick the who called taught me. The Buster, which is what Vince used to call Brian's character back when Vince ah. was still alive. It's a proper blink and you'll miss it nod to the franchise back. I really like that bit. I I love when little things are dropped into scripts that are there if you're listening and it doesn't matter if you don't. That whole street race is is unbelievably dumb. Then, even at the start of it, there is a line which makes no, like literally no fucking sense. Dom says, it doesn't matter what's under the hood, it matters who's behind the wheel, which is just utter shite. (laughs) 
let's see Dom race me in a 911 Turbo S while he's in a beige 1975 Morris Marina. I'm pretty certain that what's under the hood matters a lot <laughs> because it doesn't matter how far you jam your foot down or how many gear shifts you punch in, I'm going to beat you. Anyway, that's just screenwriter license taken a little too far. Um, Letty and Dom, now Letty's regained her memory and, and so on and so forth. They're on honeymoon and Letty somehow brings up the subject of kids. And then literally five minutes later, Dom gets blackmailed into working for the baddie because he has a secret kid. Spoilers. That's the that's spoilers. I'm going to go straight into spoilers. There is no point in me trying to hide the spoilers because the spoilers are what's fun about this movie. Spoiler, Dom has a kid. Spoiler, it's with Mrs. Hemsworth or, or, or that cop from Fast Five, you know the one. The plot is basically a late Pierce Brosnan era Bond plot. It, you know, it's it's full of stupid set pieces linked together by the thinnest, most invisible of threads with a over-the-top supervillain doing over-the-top supervillain things in an over-the-top supervillain base. There will probably be some cars chasing on ice and some silly threats. <laughs> it has, as its supervillain, Charlize Theron, who is generally fantastic in almost everything she's in. She was in Mad Max Fury Road, which we really should review on this podcast. <laughs> and she is so wasted in this movie. Mm. Not as in she's high, as in she's just not <laughs> used for anything. This is the atomic blonde, and yet she does no ass-kicking, though she does do a good line in kind of purring threats and, and espousing game theory, a, a, a glowering Dominic Toretto. <laughs> um but she's so wasted in this, and she's got the kind of weird um, bleached blonde dreadlocks t- to show that she is somehow cyber and hip and not just <laughs> a little bit Gwen Stefani. <laughs> wow, there's a reference. Anyway, this is the movie where they kind of start to, to soften the, the harsh edges of Hobbs's character. Mm. They give him a like, comedy intro with his daughter and football, and it, it's all setting the scene for Hobbs and Shaw. Um, this is also the movie where they retconned Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw from being a bad guy in the previous movie to being a good guy in this movie, despite him having murdered Han. Or has he? Or has he? Because he's back in Fast Nine. But yeah, my. But that's the thing; they don't know that, and yet they're all like, "Oh, okay, we'll just let him come on because he's Jason Statham, and he is awesome." I've got some notes here which I'm, I'm sort of referring to, and I just have a line here that says, "Kurt motherfucking Russell." <laughs> yes. Yes. That's all that needs to be said about that. He, Snake Plissken is easily the best thing about this movie. Kurt Russell is having a ball. He's just like, he's like a twinkly father Christmas, just <laughs> coming in, making the scenes better. He he gives the, the absolute, the most ridiculous lines, just enough weight for them to seem real and enough levity to make it seem like he's in on the joke. And let's be honest... I think everyone in this movie, apart from, again, sorry, Vin Diesel, is in on the movie's ultimate joke, which is, this is stupid shit and we know it, but hey, look, isn't it pretty and silly? (laughs) And he's in on it and it's just glorious. Anytime he's on the screen, the movie lifts. Anytime he's not on the screen, the movie sags a bit. Um, Scott Eastwood is also in this movie, which is a thing. Uh, There is a scene where... Charlie Theron's character, who's called Cypher because, you know, that's not on the nose. Um, she is a cyber hacker and, and she somehow using magic and is she using the God's eye from the previous film? Mm. I can't remember. Uh, she hacks cars and makes them go out of showrooms and mm. plunge out of, of because that's not how hacking works. Oh, my fucking God. <sighs> that's not how cars work. That's not how physics and reality works. <laughs> But, you know, it looks shiny and cars crash into other cars. It's just monumentally stupid. Uh, It has a feel of sort of late 90s spy TV shows where you can hack any camera from any satellite and get a focus on anything. You can get cell phones and... Enhance, rotate. Yes, (laughs) the the Hollywood obsession with being able to enhance around corners. Oh, dearie me. So there's there's a bunch of stuff. Dom is basically turned traitor by Cypher. She uses his, his... his unknown 
offspring to blackmail him into coming and working for her against the family. That's Ooh. the big twist of this, is they're fighting him. Only they're not really, because, you know, he's going to get his revenge. Uh, so, yeah, you get a bit of, of, of conflict there. There's a bunch of just ludicrously stupid action sequences. I couldn't even tell you what the cars were. There's a ton of dodges in this, because I think Fiat Chrysler paid a load of money. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's loads of dodges. Dom drives a charger, as he always does, but there's loads of other dodges being used around the place. And there's a million-dollar show car in a random scene where they go because you know when you're chasing down you know an international cyber villain what you really need is a bright orange lamborghini murcielago <laughs> but you know roman pierce is like hey that's a million dollar show car and somewhere Tavares is twitching at the state <laughs> of the show car more on that later after roman pierce has driven it into an icelandic lake Ah, so that thing about hacking the cars, well, Cypher isn't finished there. She hacks a nuclear submarine because that's a thing you can do. <laughs> There's cars racing around on ice. It's still a Pierce Brosnan Bond. All it needs is a shit Madonna theme song and the movie would be absolutely on par for like an early 2000s era Brosnan Bond. And I liked Pierce Brosnan as Bond, but the movies themselves, Goldeneye Apart, were all shit. <laughs> it kind of progresses. There's there's some kind of split stakes um, you know, uh, Dom is trying to rescue his son and, and get his own back on Cypher and so on. So he somehow, with the aid of Helen Mirren's, um, what's her name? Something short. She's the mother of... of Cockney mum. Cockney mum. She is very fun in this. She's obviously having a great time. Much like Kurtz Russell, she is in on the joke. So she plays uh, um, Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw's mum and she is enlisted by Dom to help aid the cause of, of saving the family and getting him out from this blackmail that he's been done with Cypher. It's all a bit hand wavy, but she's having a great time and she gets to be super cockney. And, and like you said, the, the, the script is kind of rubbish. And the thing is, these are less and less quotable as they go on. You know, the action scenes are more and more unbelievable and the, the actual dialogue is less and less interesting because it's just you know a means to getting them to the next explodey explodey scene however there's still little moments of brilliance in there and there is a sequence with the Stath rescuing dom's son from cypher's yes! baddie plane yes we we're also using his brother crispy fried owenshaw um <laughs> from fast six uh who is still alive and there's this wonderful sequence of him saving saving the kid from from the baddies on the plane which is largely stolen from hard-boiled by john woo right but let's not split hairs it's a great scene in in hard-boiled it's a great scene here and it's playing into the stathe's best traits of being sort of cockney and hard and charming and lovable rogue i love that and that bit. again sets him up for the sort of um the silliness and the the conflict and ultimately brotherly resolution of hobbs and shaw which we've mentioned before i like a lot Long story short, submarine, million dollar show car sinks, um, explodey, explodey, Cypher escapes with a parachute and Dom gets his kid back and, you know, somewhat bum note, names it Brian, oh, which God, is a yes. sweet touch and makes no sense in the actual Fast and Furious movie verse, but all the fans are like, yeah, he called it Brian after Paul Walker's character, Brian. <gasps> oh, rest in peace, Paul Walker. And I get it, but it makes no sense. Didn't stop it making 1.236 billion at the box office, though. Can I give you my my impression of the film overall? Go on, Em. I really liked it. <laughs> it's it's better than seven. Seven, I must admit, uh, is is just too far up its own ass. Uh, this. Apart from Dom, who's never in on the joke, everyone else is in on the joke. Kurt motherfucking Russell's brilliant. Um, they all take the piss out of Scott Eastwood's character, which is brilliant. There's a million dollar show car in it. Um, <laughs> you know, no matter what you say, the whole, you know, these guys are now... I mean, when they interviewed the director about this, and this was directed by F. Gary Gray, who's done... Um, he did the Italian Job remake, which we've talked about on a previous podcast on I Really Like... Um, so he's got away with vehicular mayhem. Mm. And by and large, you know, it's pretty clear there's some fun stuff. I don't think there's an action sequence to beat the one on the bus in Fast 7, which you forgot to mention, but I forgot to mention. Yes. Um, but the the fight on the bus between Tony Jar and Paul Walker is exceptional. Mm. That's 
so good. It's brutal and it's inventive and it's in a closed space. And I know a lot of that is going to be because Tony Jaa is a martial arts god, but Paul Walker is properly up Ooh. for it and, and really gives it some. And I love that scene. When he escaped from the bus, there's a proper vertigo moment where you're watching telly and you're holding onto the sofa because you can look down and like... <clears throat> That's a great sequence. And I don't think there's anything in this movie that quite matches that sequence. No. But the movie as a whole is much more fun. And I think a lot of that is down to Jason Statham uh, and with a side order of Helen Mirren. Uh, <laughs> it's, My good old mum. It's great fun. And for all that we go on about them retconning Deckard Shaw from a baddie into a goodie, he's way better as a goodie than a baddie. Mm. And it's it sets up Hobson Shaw. It gives them an even bigger cast for Fast 9. I mean giving any of them anything to do is crazy. The one thing I will say about this movie is it does lack the way in that Brian always provided. Brian was one of us. He was our way in at the start of The Fast and the Furious, the very first one. He is the audience surrogate into this world and he has always been the audience surrogate in these movies. And this movie doesn't have that. Mm. It's the first one not to have it and it shows. Um, and they carry over it. This pretty much follows straight on from Fast 7. They've still got that what's it character, the 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 girl who invented the god's eye she's ramsey ramsey she's thoroughly pointless um and doesn't really make any kind of charisma impact in any way mm. um i don't know if she's back in fast nine i haven't seen the trailer but yes fast eight i i actually i'd probably put it quite high mm. and this is where we get to now do the the ranking so i'm gonna have to try and remember where i ranked everything <laughs> but it goes tokyo drift yeah the fast and the furious yep. Fast Five, Fast Six, Fast and Furious, which is Fast Four, except am I going to shuffle that and put Fast Eight, <laughs> then Fast Four, and then Fast Seven, and then Two Fast, Two Furious at the bottom. Everyone clear? I think we need to write this down and, pro- and probably recap it next episode. <laughs> yes, anyway, um, this is quite good. Fast Seven, yes. less good. Both of them are extraordinarily silly, but full of some of the most eye-popping action you're ever likely to see with cars. I would say, I know we've kind of gone on about this, but I found the Fast 8 the easiest to suspend my disbelief. You're absolutely right about Charlize Theron. The plot is largely inconsequential, but it has that sparkle. It has that fizz. It is engaging. The scene that you mentioned where they suddenly start all of these cars driving towards a, a, a motorcade... I really like that for its inventiveness. You're right. That's not how hacking works in the slightest. But the way that they just had all these cars all coming together into one large mass, it was... It's it's something you haven't seen yeah. before. And that's, that's impressive. Eight movies into a franchise giving you new things you haven't seen instead of just retreading the same old shit is, is pretty good going. And I think you get that with having a new director on board. Yes. Um, and that is worth highlighting. And you're right, there it is there is that sparkle. And you know, F. Gary Gray is on record as having said this is another pivot. So when they pivoted from street racing to being heist movies, mm. and then this is a pivot again, an intentional one from heist movies to spy capers, mm. which is where the bond parallels come into it. So I can see where they're aiming for this is they're going, Okay, we'll do this, but we'll do, you know, the most outrageous <laughs> heist movies you've ever seen and now it's going to be the most outrageous spy movies you've ever seen and it does that thing at the end where it goes back and it unpicks how all the bits of work that you've seen up to that point so i think it, it, it is it could have been absolutely fantastic it's not it's a fast and the furious film but you're right if you go if you think of it as a spy film as a kind of heisty capery thing i think this is one of the better ones and this i would actually go back and watch again willingly i have gone back and watched it again willingly whereas i think fast fast seven i think i kind of made myself watch yeah and and this one i got into it more and i think there's 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 more fun back in this one there is anyway we have blathered on about this series for four episodes (laughs) and probably over two hours worth of, of inconsequential ranting about family so shall we talk about what henry catchpole has been up to Let's talk about what Henry Catchpole's been up to, because this week he has been driving the aerial Nomad R. He has. We mentioned about his uh, Diablo video in the last episode, and we both talked about how well it was produced. 
the start of this, there are visuals that make me think of Top Gear. It's properly, it's dramatically lit, it's smoky, it's colourful, it's thoughtful. It is fantastically well shot. I mean, it far outstrips whatever I imagine the budget might be. It looks brilliant. Henry does what Henry does. He does it very well. He is clearly having a fantastic time in a bonkers machine. And if I ever get an aerial nomad, which I'm not likely to, I will get a custom Tamir Hornet body kit made for it. <laughs> there's a there's a section in this where he just sits down next to a waterfall. I love that. Yes. There's some wonderful there's some wonderful stabilized shots, which I think are when you like gaffer tape a drone to the front of the car to get the stabilization working. Uh, where you can see the, the the image is stable, but the car the 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 the, the rest of the background's moving all around, which shows you how hard the suspension is working. Mm. And one of the joys of I think filming an aerial product is everything's exposed, so you can see everything working. And you know they they take advantage by bolting GoPros to moving suspension arms and other things. It's very inventive. Uh, it's not very long either, no. and I, it it's, tells a story in just the right amount of time is fantastic and i know we go on about these stuff these things all the time but again do watch it because carfection are giving you this amazing stuff mm. uh, for nothing it's it's amazing speaking of things to put on youtube my picks for this week my first one is not going to be another carfection video because they did a great piece about Williams heritage which if you don't know the Williams F1 team have a department which is there to run their old Formula 1 cars. If you have squillions of pounds, you can go and buy an old Williams F1 car and they will run it for you and all that sort of thing. However, slight problem with it. It's a very good piece. It's very interesting. It was obviously filmed before Williams got bought out by... Dorito Capital. Yes, the asset strip. Dorito Capital. Because it has the department led by Jonathan Williams who's no longer there. He's left. <laughs> and the chief mechanic is Dickie Stamford, who's Who also left. left and gone to United Autosports. So it's a good piece, but it's actually dated in the time it's taken to edit. Instead, I will pick my video, uh, something that we kind of mentioned earlier, which is Chris Harris let loose on audience cars during a Top Gear filming. So this is a lovely, sweet little video of him basically jumping off the stage and just going round the thing and going, what's that? Oh, was that TR7? It's a stream of consciousness, just sort of wibble around all of the audience cars. And he has that... I genuinely wonder with Chris, and I mean this with the utmost respect, because he is a fantastic writer and he's spectacularly knowledgeable about such things. But he can just go around all these people's cars know what he's looking at, know what he's talking about. If anybody says anything, he's got a witty retort off the top of his head. I, I'm so glad that they've put this out on YouTube because I'm sure they did it as a bit of a warm-up piece or something while they were filming. It's it's lovely. I, I honestly, honestly, honestly hope that there is going to be this sideline of Top Gear offcuts, which um, we get to enjoy on YouTube because it's Chris doing what Chris does best and it, it's... The Young Timer auction collection again. It's all of those sorts of things. It's fantastic. I knew you'd bring that up. I knew you'd bring that up because it's the same thing. It is. It's the same it's thing. It's just him being him. For a channel, I'm going to cheat and not pick a channel. <laughs> Instead, I'm, I, I'm going to select a playlist from uh, Freddy Tavarish Hernandez's channel, which we've talked about before because it's great, um, where he buys the remaining hero car from Fast 8, the bright orange Lamborghini Murcielago that ended up in the ocean and was used for door surfing. This is the million-dollar show car I was talking about earlier on. And he then basically takes apart and tells you all the things that they did in the production and how just how knackered it actually was. And I watched this live as it was being made, as he was putting these videos out week by week, and... It's astonishing. It's a complete rebuild from a car that might look good on camera, but when you get up close, <laughs> is an absolute fucking wreck. Yes. To being turned into what is actually a stunning-looking car, including you know a full, incredibly detailed um, paint job, restoring the interior to something befitting a car of its stature. He keeps the wheels that came with it, sort of split rim, slightly um, 
off brand they're not lamborghini wheels but you know he has them refurbished um he has a special exhaust made for it to to give it sort of a far more race car sound it's a brilliant series i don't know how many episodes there are in it quite a few but uh, yeah, you see, watching it as it comes out means you're desperate for the next one. But if you were to try to take on watching the whole series, <laughs> there's hours of footage here. But, you know, the work he and and his sort of small band of companies and, and helpers that, that gave him a hand throughout do exceptional work. It's really worth watching. Yeah. I know that's Chris's channel, but I, I watched the series. I loved it. It's probably... It's the thing that got me watching Tavarish more than anything else, perhaps. So, uh, yes... I have chosen a video that came out today for the YouTube channel, uh, for my YouTube video. It's called Stig Drifts. This is something that I spotted on Twitter from Top Gear Magazine's Rowan Horncastle, who said, I've just put together this video series. It's called Stig Drifts. It's basically the Stig in a bunch of tasty rear-wheel drive cars pulling massive drifts with a sort of retro 90s video game aesthetic. Awesome. What could be better than that? It's awesome. Uh, the first one up is an E90 M3 GTR, Oof. which is bright orange and makes a lovely noise and goes very sideways. Um, the only thing I would suggest is that they need a pedal cam so you can see Stiggy's foot prodding the accelerator, but it's brilliant. And it shows you the drifts from many angles with many video game voices over the top saying, excellent. Can I be a pedant? Uh-huh. It was the M3 GTS, not GTR. Sorry, I'm... Yeah, I've also got caught up with the whole AMG GTR... R, R, GT3 R thing that set the Nürburgring lap record. Uh, but yes, it is the GTS, sorry. My channel for this week is something slightly different. This is a channel called Scarf and Goggles, <laughs> which is about land speed record cars, amongst other things. I love land speed record cars. I have, I've been to the Motor Museum at Bewley to see them. I have yet to go to Coventry to see the Thrust SSC and Thrust 2, but I really want to go. Um, and I found this because I happened across a video about the Railton Mobile Special, which is John Cobb's land speed record breaking car. You know, aero engine, futuristic 60s swoopy sci-fi bodywork, and very little in the way of safety features <laughs> or or any kind of passing thought given to the sort of methodical approach that Andy Green and the Thrust team and, and latterly the Bloodhound team have, have taken to setting land speed records. This is kind of design it on paper. It looks all right. Put your foot down. Get on with it. And they're just full of these amazing stories. There's, there's a story about... Um, a car called the Thunderbolt, the missing monster of land speed records. It's just a quirky, brilliant little YouTube rabbit hole to find yourself falling down. And because the Brits have been pretty involved and pretty successful in land speed records across history, there's a bunch of really fun things to watch. So I, I really recommend on a cold winter's night, pouring yourself something hot and preferably tasty and, and watching a bit of scarf and goggles. Excellent. Oh, that's, that sounds really cool. A thoroughly different note which to end on after all the Fast and Furious madness. But that is indeed the end of this, this episode of the Auto Movie Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a positive review. Give us some feedback on Twitter. And we promise we won't talk about the Fast and Furious next time for at least one or two episodes. <laughs> uh, we've probably got one more episode in us before the Christmas break. Uh, so we might do some kind of Christmas special fun movie type thing there. But until then, this is us telling you that we need to do fast stuff and preferably <laughs> in million dollar show cars. Until next time, everyone. Bye.